Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return, property and investment podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined by Emma Long, who is Head of Business Strategy at LGIM Real Assets Equity. During Emma's time at LGIM, she has worked with a variety of different investors across their range of property investment offerings, from well-established pooled balanced funds to launching new specialist vehicles such as Build to Rent. And more recently, Emma's role has evolved to lead on business strategy, which we'll come to talk more about later on, uh, about what that means for LGIM and how it thinks about its investors and its occupiers and the wildly changing landscape. So welcome to the podcast, Emma, and thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Anna. Yeah, lovely to be here today. Given your role and your expertise, I thought it would be really, really useful to dig into LGIM's approach to investment and how you adapt in a changing market and considerations like sustainability and due diligence in the decision-making process. But Firstly, though, for context, how big is legal and general investment management and what do you do and how does it relate to legal and general group? I'm also aware, by the way, there's a lot of kind of technical jargon that comes into (laughs) this world. So if you can explain it in terms that my mum would understand, that would be especially (laughs) So um, legal and general investment management, or LGIM, as we like to call it, working here, is the investment management business of the legal and general group. So the group itself has three main divisions. I'll talk about the investment management piece in detail. So I'll um, come on to that. We have a so legal and general annuity business, which is about pension risk transfer. So this is literally buying the liabilities of the pension scheme and paying out the annuities and pensions on an ongoing basis. So that's a very long dated liability business to pay out these pensions. We also have legal and general capital which is actually our, the organization's balance sheet. So literally the cash that the England General has on its balance sheet. And they are investing that to um, generate returns for the shareholders. The investment management business that I sit in works for both those other divisions and will run money for those other divisions and also manages money for third parties. So a lot of our clients are pension schemes, for example, or institutional investors around the world, or actually you and I investing into maybe a pool fund proposition. So lots of different kind of client bases. We'll, we'll talk about kind of how that's changed as we go through this conversation. My role is within the real assets business of LGIM. And what that means is that we are investing in physical built environment. So things like real estate, building offices, shopping centers, apartment buildings, and also infrastructure So those might be things like renewable energy sites, so PV, solar panels, wind assets. And we are not only investing in them as the owner, so, you know, as a landlord, for example, and we talk about real estate, but we're also lending to those businesses. So we have both debt and equity that we talk about. That business is about $36 in size. Uh, About $20 of that is UK real estate. And that's where my role is focused. And that's where we have the deep heritage. So we've been investing in UK real estate since the early 70s. We've been running pooled fund investments for people since the early 70s. And that fund's still around, actually. So what I do is spend my time thinking about what the strategic direction of our equity business is, where we want to be investing, how we want to be investing, how are we getting the best for our clients, 
And because it has more of a, a legacy, it is a more complex piece. We've got these fund structures that are running different kinds of investment strategies. We've got lots of different investors. It has more complexity to it. So my role is to really kind of join up the dots around what we're doing and make sure that we're spending our efforts in areas that we think are going to grow the business and deliver kind of meaningful results for our clients. Amazing. Wow. Okay. That's a whistle-stop tour. And I'm so glad. Thank you, by the way, so much for kind of simplifying. Because it's quite... (laughs) These kind of organizational structures can be quite confusing from the outside. So it is really helpful Mm -hmm. Have the simple person's mark guide. And you talked to me a little bit about LGIM. I'll say it correctly this time. LGIM <laughs> goals. What are, what would you say your strategic goals as a business are? For example, in terms sure. of turns or, or yeah, I think if we, yeah. Yeah. If we think about, you know, the context of where I why I sit in the real assets equity business, and you know, it does clearly feed into where LGIM is going overall. And the real assets private markets kind of area is really strategically important to LGIM. We, number one to us is maintaining investment performance because okay? that's what our, our clients want and what they need. They, they are giving us the mandate to invest money on their behalf and they need the return. You know, they themselves have to show that fiduciary duty back to their, their members, their investors. So that might be you or I paying into DC pension scheme or it might be, you know, one of your parents or grandparents who are fortunate enough to be part of a DB final salary scheme and have paid contributions to that their whole lives. Just to find those ones. So basically... Like, and we're investing that on their part. Yeah, absolutely. So DB or final salary pension scheme is kind of the old the old model of pension benefit, I suppose. It's been phased out over in most organisations. So what that is, is where the company would bear the liability for paying your pension when you retire. Um, you know, you might contribute through your salary and they'll probably match that. But ultimately, they've made a promise to you that when you retire, they will pay X, you know, normally it's X percent of your, your salary, for example. And it's a liability on that company to pay it. So it doesn't matter how those investments perform, they still have to pay you. So those companies are looking for a provider that will make sure the investments perform as they need to, to meet those liabilities. That's what they're trying to match. They have an end game they're trying to match. DC or defined contribution pension plans are sort of the new norm because that old style has created a lot of liabilities for companies that you can imagine aren't very attractive for them to bear when kind of asset markets have maybe underperformed versus what they thought they want. So you and I, and most people nowadays, are invested or their employer will have invested in a, a DC defined contribution scheme. And what that means is you're paying in, you can kind of be as active as you want, you can choose where it's invested or, or many employers offer a kind of default option they sort of do the the decision of that for you and they they recommend but the key difference is that it's worth whatever it's worth when you retire so you're paying in investments are performing you know in terms of whatever strategy they you end up putting them in and you retire with whatever it's worth there's no promise from the company it's just worth what it's worth so you know it puts the onus back onto the individual to invest to make contributions they might be matched or you know, a degree matched by the organisation, but they're not making a promise about the amount that it's worth at the end. Mm-hmm. That's quite a key difference, actually. And it's good to kind of unpack that because that change is something that's really affecting institutional managers like Algem. So the DB pension schemes that have been a big part of our client base are effectively kind of on the way out because they're, they're still big liabilities out there 
the future, we look long-term future, is that those schemes are, you know, they're no longer being offered to people. So ultimately, they're on a trend to pay out and reduce. What we've also seen over the last couple of years is because of the economic conditions, because of where rates have gone, you know, because of inflation, lots of those schemes have moved to a place where they found themselves what they call fully funded, which basically means that they have got enough money to meet those liabilities. And actually, so they don't want to continue to hold those liabilities. They will just then move those liabilities to someone like LNG um, to take on. So LNG basically buys all those um, those liabilities to pay out themselves. So it's sort of almost, in, it's like, think of kind of insuring that liability and taking on the risk themselves. So what we're seeing is a lot of our DB clients are switching out of what you call a liquid assets, things like real estate, things that are difficult to trade or take longer to trade because of the nature of buying real estate, right? You've got to find a buyer and a seller, you do due diligence. It takes, you know, like how long it take, might yeah. take to buy a house. It can take months. So these aren't things like a share that you can buy and sell on a daily basis. They take time. So a lot of these schemes are switching out of things like real estate into more liquid assets so that they can then take this, do this buyout transaction. So that's across the kind of UK institutional market. We've definitely seen that trend. More and more of these investor groups switching out. So what we've had to think about is, okay, who's taking up that kind of vacuum created? And I say fortunate, but we put in a lot of hard work on this a long time ago you know, we knew DC was coming and we needed to plan for the future and what that looked like for organizations. So, you know, we have infrastructure, we're really fortunate here, we do have infrastructure. We have some of the things that really appeal to DC investors, which is a lot about, they're also looking for liquidity because of the way, it is quite technical, the way that the technology that kind of facilitates investment needs to be able to put money into investments sort of on a daily basis. So they're looking for things that they can access really quickly and that has meant some, we have property funds here that we have created to be liquid. They have daily trading, which means they hold a bit of cash to facilitate money kind of coming in and out. And because we've got that infrastructure, we've been able to work with some really strategic DC investors who have taken quite early moves to invest into things like real estate. Because it's quite nascent, the DC investment space, real estate's been one, seen as one of the more kind of alternative asset classes. It's got this difficulty around liquidity. It's been a bit yeah, difficult for DC investors to kind of tolerate. But there's been some early movers, and Nest is an example of that. They're the National Employee Savings Trust. They're, they're, they're a sort of a government-affiliated kind of auto-enrollment scheme, which basically means that legislation changed some years ago meant that you now have to opt out of having a pension rather than opt in. And that was designed to, you know, mean that people had a plan, basically, for when they retire. And rather than rely on people to do the kind of admin of them themselves, the, the emphasis switched for you to opt out. So a lot more people are participating now, which is great. But having those kind of clients on board has meant we've really been able to kind of work with them, understand space, understand what we need. And, and we're really, for us, one of our you know key strategic themes is thinking about our product offering, responding to that specific client need. And I think it's really interesting. Again, we'll come and talk about it. I know ESG is a big, big topic. There's so much more I guess, awareness and activism around where people's pensions are invested. And I think there's a really kind of neat thing here. It's almost a bit of PR, the pensions world needs to do, because pensions is not really a very sexy world. It it needs like a rebrand. You know, when you (laughs) think... Oh, surely not. (laughs) (laughs) The amount of money, you know, that's serious. That's big amounts of money. That's huge investments. That's powerful stuff. If we stop using the word pensions and just use words investment... 
I think it kind of just engages people way more. And we've got to your man on the street is actually investing and being more aware about where their pensions are going. And I think it's a really nice story, right, with real estate because we are working and living and shopping and using these buildings on a daily basis. It's just such a great thing if we can, you know, people can think about they're paying their rent, for example, and it's going back into their pension. It might be a collective pot, but ultimately they're kind of funding their own retirement. Yeah. That's really neat. And I think that there's so much more, I say, we can kind of do in that space. As that space becomes more sophisticated itself around thinking about different investment types. And, you know, we're here, we've got a track record with those kind of investors. Hopefully we'll be in a really good spot that we can start to unlock more propositions that we can get to fit into that. Yeah. And actually on that, and I'm sure we'll touch on this when we get onto ESG performance or ESG strategies, but you and I have talked a lot about intergenerational inequality. Mm-hmm. I think pensions are, pensions and real estate both are perfect examples where you were talking about defined benefit and defined contributions. There's a huge intergenerational <laughs> inequality yeah. and ditto within the real estate market. So if yeah. there's a way of kind of using pension funds to help address some of the inequality in the real estate market, for example, between generations, yes. that is really neat, like you say. Yeah. So... Yeah, and I definitely... Sorry, Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say that I definitely think it is happening in a way that's the kind of like some of the PR we probably need to do around and say that the kind of people switch off when they hear the word pensions because lots of people are invested. They are invested. And it's just understanding where their money is and what's being done with that. Yeah. And I think it's also like it's an area with a lot of jargon that turns people off really yes. quickly, which actually like is a massive problem. It's, it's a huge problem. And, and I think that's why I would try to make things put things into simple terms because none of it's that complicated but well actually some of it is but <laughs> it can be explained in less, in less complicated terms so okay yeah. and just moving on when it comes to kind of evaluating a potential investment strategy or potential investment strategies what kind of benchmarks or key performance indicators does LGM mm. real assets and the equity part of the business particularly actually prioritize and how do they contribute to the decision making process. Mm. So I'm in danger of repeating myself, you know, fundamentally it comes back to what job does this solve for our clients? Okay. So that's we're trying to really understand the needs of our investor base and it's got to work for them. Otherwise it's not going to fly. We've also got to really understand the investment proposition is compelling. So I think for us, you know, we really like to focus on what are the kind of long-term thematics that are going to be really resilient you know through cycles i think that's one of the things around particularly the built environment there are these aspects we just talked about for example residential there's a housing need there will always be a housing need i know we've got housing prices at the moment but there will always be a housing need so that's a really good long-term thematic play because sort of no matter what the economy is doing in the short term you should always see that there is a need for that investment. There will be people there to take that space. So you are creating a really nice income opportunity to create a nice income profile around that because you've got multiple people paying rent. So you've got this kind of really diversified credit risk and you've hoped you've got really long-term demand because people will always need a house. Mm-hmm. And that really works for paying out things like annuities or pensions because... That's all about income. It's about getting your annuity once once a month when you've retired. So there's a really nice fit there. 
you know, there's other things around digitalization, around the climate transition, around our kind of changing consumer behaviors, and particularly around industrial and kind of urban logistics. You know, I don't think we're saying anything kind of controversial about that. You know, we can all kind of see those themes emerging. It's just thinking about, okay, what for us is the USP that we kind of bring to that? Now, is that around access? You know, is it our network? And we we find these deals that might be up to get a kind of access to scale or better pricing? Can we create things? Can we build things? Is it because of our relationships with, say, a local authority that we might be able to unlock a deal that others might not be able to? Have we got a different angle on it? You know, are we thinking about, I talked about residential again, like, we, you know, saying that that's a long-term theme, again, is probably, there's a lot of very fair consensus about that, but is there a way that we can do it differently? You know, we, when we started investing in that space, there were others and we looked around and said, actually, we don't think what is out there is something that we want to own, want to invest in. So we decided our strategy was we were going to build it. We're going to build it to suit so we try to do things a little differently and we think that therefore we have kind of future-proofed it for our investors because it's going to be, we're going to have, you know, a better energy consumption out of our buildings. We're going to think about how people really use them, how, you know, what's the kind of interaction around the common spaces that people want, you know, as we kind of, this more, I say, changing consumer behavior these spaces need massive mail rooms to take everyone's deliveries because they're just ordering everything online and and those kind of things that might not have been thought about in the kind of first generation of those types of buildings actually can become some real pain points for people operating them and living in them so there's that piece around is there a different angle that we've got and also you know what's the scale of the opportunity because we are a multi-billion pound business it's got to have meaningful scale we can't if something's very niche and, and there's only more amount that you'll ever be able to find or build in the UK or any market, it does make it more difficult for us as an investor because we need that kind of economies of scale to really, really make it work for us and grow into that meaningful proposition for our clients. We've also, it's interesting to also think about the investments that we make as a business. So we, we're not just investing for our clients, we've invested into some actual businesses ourselves. So Elgin has taken, you know, different types of stakes and some different providers. And that's about looking at propositions that we can really scale across our business that get us to a place that makes us, is a differentiator for us. So we've got two examples of that. One of them is Air Rated, which is an organization that looks at air quality kind of within office buildings. Um, so it's sort of giving us a score on air quality. And that's hugely important for us in terms of our occupier engagement you know, how we engage with the occupiers that actually use our buildings. And I'll go back to that sentence because the, the piece around the occupiers and how that has changed is another theme we should draw out. I've talked a bit about how the investor base is changing, but the occupier is changing is something we should talk about. Um, AirAge is one of those investments. And again, so we're using it across our platform and it's, it's had huge success in, in terms of the feedback from our, our occupiers and the information that they've been able to get about the spaces that their workers are in and there's so much more focus on well-being now, of course. And I, I you know, listening to your the last episode with Alex, absolutely things like COVID have put such a microscope on, you know, the office experience and the, and the well-being of, of the people working there. And air quality is a really important part of that. Another organization we have invested in is Foundry, which is our kind of co-working SME space. And that's really about 
repurposing and making the most of space within the, our different types of assets, uh, retail and residential at the moment. And this is offering, you know, desking, offices, small, micro kind of retail event space. It's creating a bit more of a kind of community around an asset that kind of draws people to it, creates kind of vibrancy around it. Yes, it has, obviously, people are taking the space and it has a return associated with it, but it also has a kind of added value angle with the bigger overall. So there's a couple of examples where we're thinking about either kind of that occupy a well-being ESG kind of angle or the how do we flex and change what might have been some challenging space to work differently and maybe create value in a different way when we're thinking about the kind of bigger piece around around a building. So you might have big offices or big residential blocks above, but you know, what are you kind of doing on the ground floor that activates the space, that draws people in, that creates real kind of buzz about that building? Amazing. We covered a lot there. And also if any <laughs> hear about aerated in its earlier days, we actually did a podcast. I think ah. it must have been before your investment because I don't remember that being a topic, but we'll have to check. Yes. Um, but yeah, so there's an yes. early days recording. Um so <laughs> shows how long we've been podcasting. Um, so that was really, really helpful. Really interesting to hear about all that. And in your operating in a fast-changing market, so how does LGIM actually stay adaptable while maintaining that kind of consistent, reliable approach and touching on those long-term thematics that you described, but the community mm. and the reliability and evaluating and then committing to new investment strategies in that context of rapid change? Yeah, I think that maybe this is a good moment to really talk about that kind of occupied piece. So, you know, clearly an institution like Elgem and the money that we manage and the responsibility we have to our clients means we need to maintain a real, real rigor around what we do. And we would, as you'd imagine, all the kind of risk processes that we have all over the place, making sure that we are doing the right thing by our investors. And, you know, that is just part of our, the DNA and the culture here, but obviously you need to, you need to demonstrate that as well, obviously for audit purposes. And that's key. And there's a lot of kind of thought around what's best practice governance, how we're aligning ourselves to the right kind of outcomes for our clients. But we also we need to be kind of flexible and nimble because we need to respond, right? And things are changing and they're changing faster than, you know, we've ever seen. Uh, like I say, in the last few years, just the way the world has changed. And I've had the benefit of, I've been really fortunate enough to go off and spend a bit of time um, out of the business on maternity leave. And actually coming back, it really does highlight to you how quickly things change because things like ESG, for example, have just shot up the agenda in just an absolutely huge way that I wouldn't have... And it was always there, but it was more of a tick box. And just it has become... The dialogue has become just so, so much bigger than it was even, I think, three years ago. And then, you know, compounded by things like this kind of global uncertainty we've seen, energy crisis, cost of living crisis... So ESG has really shot up. And also this, this piece around occupier and the fact that the landlord can no longer be that kind of hands-off, see you in 20 years' time type landlord. You have to be really, you know, things like COVID have shaken things like the office sector into, you know, you really need to be able to deliver an office that is worth coming into for people, for example. So this is so much more power back to the occupier about how their expectation of a landlord. So for a landlord, you know, when I started out in the industry, a good tenant 
was one that you could sign, you know, was a bulletproof credit rating, sign them off for a 25-year lease, full repairing and insuring lease, and we'll check in with them around kind of break time and see if we can extend that lease for them. And that was kind of an asset manager's, you know, dream job. It just doesn't exist like that anymore. The type of organizations that are out there that can kind of take on those kind of lease liabilities are, you know, getting fewer and fewer. And we need to really treat our tenants like the customers that they are. We need to attract, retain, we need to show off our portfolios and we need to show why we're the landlord of choice um, because they are going to get an extra layer of service from us. And so we've invested really a lot into this being nimble approach. I think it's really demonstrated by how we've invested into different skill sets. We've brought different skill sets into the organization. So what was a very asset manager, kind of traditional asset manager, and that would mean sort of surveying investment, surveying background, we're seeing a lot more individuals coming in around data and technology, a lot more around kind of marketing, comms. Um, how are we getting the benefits of the insight from our portfolio and how are we reaching out and showcasing what we can do? For example, we've launched a platform website, Vista. That means that our occupiers can log on, they can access their documentation and they can also things like see things like energy usage. And we've worked on, we're, we're rolling out things like automatic meter reading so we can get that kind of information from them because we need to manage the transition to net zero carbon on our portfolios we can only do that by understanding what the energy usage is in our building and the only way we can kind of get that from occupiers is by giving them a reason to want to work with us on that so things like Vista have allowed us to do is to be able to offer our occupiers access to our expertise around managing energy consumption improving energy consumption and the kind of trade-off, if you like, for that is that we can, you know, access their energy data. So it's building those kind of more of a relationship with our end users that we never really, was never seemed to be up on the agenda in this industry. And we were taking that and kind of wrong with it. And I think it's really paying dividends now. And, you know, this year we actually won Customer Service Award at the National Awards against any other, you know, any business could have entered. So... I mean, you know the rep that landlords have to get a customer service award as a landlord at it. and in a forum like that is something that we're, we're really, really proud of. But it's something we need to do. We need to do. We need to offer that so that our, we've got two customers, we've got investors, we've got the occupiers in our building and we need to show to our investors that we're doing the right thing by occupiers and that they're, you know, that's best road for, for your investment because they'll stay with us and they will hopefully take more space and they might expand and grow and that's a good thing. And so we've kind of touched a little bit on sustainability and on environmental, social and governance factors. These are increasingly important, as you mentioned. I wondered if you could just explain what's LGM's approach to integrating them into investment strategies or maybe more interesting as well, when you're exploring new opportunities, how do you integrate ESG considerations in there? Yeah, one of the reasons why I've been really proud to work for LGM is that I think we've been really strong in this area for a really long time. And again, it, it's sort of laying the foundations piece because we can all see sort of the trajectory. And I think that we've been an organisation that has really walked the walk for quite a long time. And whilst there's been a lot of rhetoric out there, like I, it has not been rhetoric here. And we've, we've definitely been acting and putting a lot of things in place and now really coming to bear. So I do really think that we've got a really strong leadership around this in particular. And we've got an amazing ESG team here and... Um, that are trialing and piloting all sorts of things. 
And of course, the challenge is, you know, got to evidence that it does provide value. And, and ultimately, you've got a fiduciary duty to the investors, which means that we, you know, we can't just do something because it's green. We have to do something because it is green and also doesn't compromise the position of the investors. So, but you would argue, and we do argue, there's obviously a long-term play here around making sure that assets are future-proof. And ultimately, if you don't have buildings that respond to these, um, to the climate kind of crisis, climate transition, that you are going to get stuck with something that's really poorly performing for your investors. So it's something that is being the value and is ever debated and it's really hard to benchmark because we just don't have and again I, you know your last podcast with Alex went into this and got you know how many proliferation of frameworks and benchmarks guidance regulations there are out there so I, I don't need to go into that again but how are we really translating those actions into value that we can capture on the investments is something that I think is still being kind of understood and tested but it's still really important that we stay on top of developments here so you know ESG considerations are part of really the DNA of uh, when we're looking at our, our new investments. You know, we're thinking about net zero audits as part of our due diligence. So we just, we understand, you know, we have made commitments around transition to net zero by 2050. So we need to understand a building, what we would need to do, what interventions we would need to make, what's that going to cost to get us there before we make an investment and we need to have a plan for that when we make an investment. You know, we look at physical risk and kind of climate resilience. We do specialist modelling about what the implications are of climate change on a particular asset. And we also, you know, we have factors to take into consideration around, for example, biodiversity net gain, that we are promoting a better outcome around biodiversity as a result of our investment. And we also have looked at ways that we can really begin to measure social value. You know, again, another one that's in some ways, and again, echoing Alex's, environmental factors, easier to kind of quantify the impact or certainly the, the negative impact, I suppose, if you don't factor in things like energy consumption. But for social value, you know, that's a much harder thing to qualify into numbers. So that's something we've been really working hard on. We're building up framework. We've been working with some external consultants about how we think about social value. How do we promote local skills and employment? How do we support growth of responsible regional businesses? How do we build healthier, safer, more resilient communities? And that's got to be about the needs of that community, not this this tendency, this aspect to kind of think about, you know, making something better gentrification it's not about gentrification it's about what does that community in existence really need and, and what do our actions do to support that and yeah uh, protecting and kind of improving the environment around anything that we are mm. we're invested in and we build those factors into our governance so anything that's going for an investment committee has to demonstrate we have walk through and thought about these things we think about what it's adding to the portfolio um in terms of its ESG credentials as much as its investment potential as well yeah and like you say it's not really enough to just think about the things that are easy to measure it has to be the kind of and I think for oh I don't know certainly where we talked about frameworks and measuring ESG credentials I do still I think that we still tend towards what's easy to measure not Mm early what's right and like the shift it's great that you're doing some work to shift the way things work on that because we just need to move closer towards you know measuring the greener kinder outcomes not just measuring what is easiest to measure yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, and one final question then. So how are you performing against your pathway to net zero? Yeah, so this is really helpful because our <laughs> we've literally just it's a good moment for me to advertise that our net zero carbon robot has just been just been published and we signed the Better Builders Partnership Commitment to a net zero in twenty nineteen. Um, and so this is about transitioning the yeah, portfolio to a net zero by 2050. And a lot of the work of our last few years has, has been about data, understanding our portfolio, benchmarking, baselining things, because we can't undertake that journey until we know where we're at. Um, and getting better data from our assets is a massive challenge. You know, as, as I mentioned, we were a management that's been around for like 50 years. <laughs> I think probably some of the buildings we own have been around for that, you know, probably own some of the few things for that long. But that we we, are, we also own, you know, it's hundreds of buildings around the UK, and within those buildings or sites, there might be hundreds of units, and then there's hundreds of occupants. So it's it's a massive job to really understand what the energy usage is across the portfolio. And we're talking not just about the scope one and two, which is the things that the landlord is kind of in control of. So that might be common areas, for example. We're also talking about scope three, which is the activity that just goes on in the building. So that's what our occupier is doing in the building. And that's not something we have control of. So we need to think about ways that we can influence that behavior. And again, it goes back to that occupier engagement piece and how we are working together with them and how we are offering that ability to help manage their own energy costs through access to our expertise. And we're also... We know over the last couple of years, we've also piloted a proposition where we can bring in more renewables on site. You know, so we're an owner of, for example, lots of industrial units. I mean, and you think, well, great big flat roofs, great for kind of delivering solar renewable energy. And wouldn't it be fantastic if we could generate that on site and the occupiers could use it? It's not easy. There's lots of challenges to that. There's lots of challenges to who pays for that, who services that, who actually has the liability for the kind of structural aspects of those groups and things. So it's not an easy thing, but we've been piloting it a couple of sites. So that's something that we're looking to start rolling out on a more meaningful scale. The actual kind of tonnage, I think I've got a couple of stats um, across our portfolio in 2022. The target was 22,000, roughly 22,000 tons of carbon. We came in at 16,000. So we're tracking below where we had targeted to take us on that trajectory to 2050. So the challenge is to obviously maintain that and that piece around the data is key to us to know where we are and how we're tracking and obviously we've got we're buying and selling so we've got things moving in and out so we have to sort of baseline things as they come in and out so it's a huge job and again you know we are an organization that has the ability to do that at scale so we can make a really meaningful impact Mm. well thank you so much for explaining all that and if any listeners want to find out more about you, El Jim, and what the business does or get in touch, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, for sure. Look, we have I probably the best ways are the usual social medias, LinkedIn. Um, El Jim obviously has its uh, page, elgym.com. There's a real assets tab there as well if you want to just get a little an idea of what the real assets team does. I'm on LinkedIn. Elgium and has its own channel, you know, has publishes things on LinkedIn. So those are good ways for people to kind of follow us or if they want to reach out or message at all that's a good Amazing. good way to do it wonderful thank you so much for joining me and thanks for listening bye a pleasure thanks Anna bye thanks for listening to The Return if you enjoyed this episode please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast